skies are blue, the clouds are high, the days are long, the nights they fly. I've found you where to live in this world of ours, this world of ours. This world of ours. And that's that, that's that bad boy by Duncan Lorimer. And that song, that reaches down into my DNA. It reaches a part of my body that I don't even, I can't even comprehend. The wor- this world of ours, that's true. This is our world. This is our universe, you know? And we're the only people that can mold it, shape it as we please. And that's why you're listening to this. So you can figure out what is the state of that universe that you're living in. You know, there's a lot of funky stuff going on in the world. There's a lot of weird stuff. There's a lot of negativity. But in this world of ours, people, we don't need that. We don't need that in our lives. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being here, whoever you are. You're the greatest. You know what kind of world I live in? I live in a world where people don't know how to use turn lanes. I live in that world, you know? I live in a world where people think that vaccines cause autism. That's the world I live in. But you know what? That's okay. That's okay because we're just getting better. We're improving day after day after day in this world of ours. So I encourage you to go check that out. Check that song out. This week's episode of the podcast features Dr. Maura McLaughlin. Maura McLaughlin is a distinguished professor of physics and astronomy at West Virginia University. She is also the chair of the NanoGrav Collaboration. And if you don't know what NanoGrav is... Nanograv is a pulsar timing array, as it's called. And if you're wondering, oh, Brendan, what's a pulsar timing array? Well, here's what I need you to do. Buckle up, because you're about to find out when you watch this podcast, okay? And Mora is also the co-director of the Pulsar Search Collaboratory. And this is a project that we talk a lot about in in the show, but it's a project that gets high school kids involved in research. And this project touches me at a fundamental level because of the troubles that I had throughout my high school years and the way that I think being involved in something like this could have helped me. And so I want to do everything I can to get get the word out, get, out, get it out to everyone, every corner of this country and every corner of the world that we need to involve high school kids in things like the Pulsar Search Collaboratory. And we talk a lot about that. And I encourage you to buckle down, listen to this, this world is ours, your world is yours, my world is mine, and we can make it good, people, we can make it good, but you know how we start? By watching my show, that's how we start, if you're thinking, oh, I'm having a bad day, you know how you make it better? Check this out, watch my show, how's that for a prescription, all right, you go to the doctor, oh, doc, I have a cold, oh, well, we're not going to give you antibiotics, because that's not going to fix your cold, Okay, so let's start there. And then the second thing we're going to do for you is sit you down in a dark room and you're going to listen to the state of the universe because that's going to cure any illness that you could ever have. With that being said, people, hit hit up my Patreon account, show it some love, follow me on social media, do whatever you have to do. Just do it good, okay? Put passion into it. Do it with passion. Do it with dedication, Have some fire in your life. Wake up on Monday morning, 7 a.m., and get stuff done. 
and you can shape this world of ours, okay? Now let's get into thanks for today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in. Since you've last heard me, what, we've, we've been through voting day? We've been through daylight savings time? So much has changed in our lives. I took a week off. I know. I'm sorry. I had to. Scientists are busy people, and I can't get them to commit every single week. But guess who we got this week? We got the great Maura McLaughlin. She's fantastic. She's an incredibly busy woman, and I thank her for, for showing up this week. Maura, how are you? I'm pretty good. It's a little bit rainy here, but... I'm doing okay. It's Friday. Can you explain to the listeners what it is that you, the types of objects you study, you don't have to go in depth because we'll, we'll do that throughout the, the talk, but the types of things you study and the types of programs you're involved with. Yeah. So I study a type of star called a pulsar and a pulsar is an exotic neutron star. Uh, they're formed in supernova explosions when massive stars reach the end of their lives. Um, nearly all my research is centered on these pulsars, but there's lots of different science topics that I work on related to them. Um, probably most of my time is going into an effort to use these pulsars to detect low-frequency gravitational waves um, from high-precision timing of the radio pulses. That's the main project I'm working on right now. And that's called Nanograv, right? It is, yeah. It stands for the North American Nanohertz Observatory for Gravitational Waves. It's kind of a mouthful, um, but it's very descriptive. We're a collaboration of scientists in the U.S. and Canada, and we're sensitive to gravitational waves at nanohertz frequencies. Okay, so so just so I understand, and just so all the people listening understand, uh, nanograv is this this cool array you set. And when I say array, oftentimes people are probably thinking like you go out in space and you you set things up. But what you do is you actually know that pulsars are going to tick very regularly, and by observing here on Earth, you can make sure that those ticks stay regular. And if you start noticing that one of those ticks is is off time, if you will, is is just you know a nanosecond off of when it should be, we have a suspicion that it's probably not the pulsar that's slowing down. It may be that the space between us and that pulsar is changing in some way, whether it be shrinking or contracting. Or those are the same thing. Don't know why I said or shrinking, contracting, or or elongating, and. Uh, we can use that information to infer that a gravitational wave has passed between us and the pulsar. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Yeah. So okay. the pulsars are our detector, basically. Um, so for this project, we're not really studying the pulsars themselves. I mean, we need to understand them in order to understand the model for the times. But the aim is not to understand the pulsars. The aim is to use them as cosmic clocks to detect very tiny deviations and the distances between the Earth and the pulsars. Okay, and I encourage all the listeners to, if you're if you if you're a little you know fuzzy on what a pulsar is, I encourage you to listen to my most recent episode with Duncan Lorimer because we we do a real in depth analysis of of neutron stars and what pulsars are, and maybe some of the details that we don't cover today would be covered in in that podcast. And I encourage you to check that out. But yes, so pulsars are incredibly interesting objects and a lot of people are are very interested in studying them and what you are doing with nanograv i think is one of the most ingenious things that is going on in physics today it's one of these things that astronomers tend to do where they find something in the universe and and really try to apply it to something that you could maybe not feasibly 
even think up in a laboratory 20 years ago. And so can you give us like the history of Nanograph? Whose idea was this? When did it come about? Yeah, actually, I mean, I think the idea is ingenious too, but I certainly didn't come up with it. The first papers on this concept were actually written a long time ago in the late 1970s. Um, So in 1978, 79, there were a couple papers which realized that you could do this with pulsars. Um, This is about 10 years after pulsars were discovered. It really wasn't possible to do back then, though. Like, the, there just weren't enough pulsars. They weren't timed well enough. Um, and then it was only in the past sort of like maybe 15, 20 years that astronomers have come back to this idea of using pulsars to detect gravitational waves. Um, Nanograv itself formed back in 2008. So we're about 12 years old. Um, when we started, there were about 10 of us. It was a really small collaboration we were all people who've like worked together for a long time. Um, we'd you know gone to grad school together, did pulsar science, and it was really informal. It's just like, hey, let's get together and try to do this project. Um, now we've grown to over a hundred people. Um, we started off with only a small amount of funding, and then we've been getting like more and more funding. And now we have um, NSF funding as a physics frontier center, which is really cool. So now we're like a real center. We're all funded um, from the same source to do this project. At the same time that Nanograv was formed, there were also collaborations in Europe and Australia that were formed. So this is something that sort of grew worldwide um, around the same time. And we're all part of a big international collaboration called the IPTA, or the International Pulsar Timing Array. I see. And this is, this, as you mentioned, this is a multi-million dollar project now with, with you know, tons of people involved. And of course, when I say multi-million, I don't mean that Mora is making multi-million dollars. I mean, that would, <laughs> yeah, be, <I> wish. <laughs> that would be fantastic and all, but, and I would encourage her to use that, that money to support my Patreon account, which you should all do. Uh, but, <laughs> but uh, that's not what I mean. I mean that there's a lot of um, National Science Foundation money going towards this project. It's a, a very ambitious project and it's being funded, um, funded so. And that's a that's a fantastic thing. And she mentioned that there's a lot of people involved. So, are you collaborating with the with the other groups around the world? Are you putting your data together and trying to advance science in that way, or are you yeah. competing? Well, it's a little bit of both. I like to call it like coopetition. Um, oh, that's nice. I like that. Co-op. <laughs> I mean, because I'm gonna steal you know, we're, that. <laughs> we're doing our own analyses, so like. We recently published our 11-year data analysis, which was based on 11 years of pulsar timing data just from Nanograv. And we searched that data for gravitational waves. We set up our limits. We do all our own science with it. And the Europeans and the Australians do the same. Um, But then at the same time, we also combine all our data into sort of a mega data set with all the data from all the telescopes around the world. Um, And in principle... Like, that should be the most sensitive data set, right? Because we're taking data from many more telescopes, many more pulsars. Um, in practice, so far, it's not just because it takes a really long time to combine it. So our limit right now with just the nanogram data is better than that international data set limit just because it's, like, a few years old. Actually, more than a few. The international data set is, like, five years old um, because it just takes so much time to get everyone together and get all the data together. So we're really working on that because we really would like to work with our international colleagues. And, and the main thing is we want to detect gravitational waves faster, and we'll detect it faster if we use this international data set, if we can get it made, like, more rapidly. Yeah, science um, is real weird to me in that, that way, that 
there's so much co-op. Like, what did what did you call it? Co. I said coopetition. Coopetition. <laughs> See, I can't even remember. It, it's weird that there's a lot of coopetition because you do have like this uh this tendency to want to work together because you can achieve things and more people are working on something. But at the same time, you know, in in a sense, this is a a sport. So far in that you want to achieve things as individuals, right? You want to, I don't want to say win because people's goal is not to win, but, but little personal wins where you, you, you achieve something, you unlock a mystery that the universe has it. And something about me at least wants to be the person to do that. I'd, you know, if, if I had to choose between, um, between me doing finding finding something out that I'm working really hard to or someone else finding it out and me not getting, you know, loads of credit, the selfishness in me would say I would want me to be that person. Um, you know, and, and I kind of look at science. People tell me I look at science wrong all the time, but I do look at it as kind of a sport. And so it it is tough for me sometimes to look at these like real like LIGO. LIGO is a big one for me. I look at LIGO and there's thousands of people involved. And then the Nobel Prize gets given to uh, just a, f- a few of them, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I had um, Brian Keating on this before, and I don't know if you know him, but he wrote a book called Losing the Nobel Prize. And mm-hmm. he was involved with the BICEP missions, uh, which were to observe the cosmic microwave background back in the early 2000s. And and he, re- he wrote a book about, about the problem with the Nobel Prize, the way that it doesn't award collaboration. And it, it kind of... Is science gives birth to people like me, people who say, wait a minute, if I'm in a collaboration, I can't get credit. So I need to work alone. Um, So how do you sort of handle that as the chair of a large collaboration? How do you ensure that credit is dispersed to people and and make sure that people feel like that their input is worthy? And and how do you handle that whole situation? I mean, we've talked about this so much lately. Um, on lots of different levels, like both within Nanograv and then in the bigger picture in how Nanograv relate to the other international colleagues. Um, on the big picture, like as far as Nanograv and the IPTA, it is tricky. And some of that is funding related. So like we have a source of funding from the National Science Foundation in the U.S. and our Australians and European colleagues, they have a source of funding like tied to their country. Um, so there are good reasons for wanting to like keep a little bit of, of stuff you know, that, that has to be named Nanograph because our National Science Foundation wants to fund us and they want, like, the U.S. effort to be known and um, get credit, right? Right. I think LIGO's changed things a lot, though, because the LIGO burger detections, you know, there are people from all over the world, and I don't think anyone would say that the NSF hasn't got credit. So I don't think it's been a problem for LIGO. I mean, NSF has done really well and got a lot of credit for their LIGO funding, as they should, and so hopefully this won't be so much of a problem going forward. Um, but it's really hard. Like in Nanograv itself, you know, we have a lot of postdocs and a lot of grad students who are looking for jobs. Um, they want papers, right? And they want papers that say, you know, they have done this work and that make their contributions really clear. Um, in Nanograv, though, we've decided that our detection and upper limit papers and our data release papers, so like our main papers in Nanograv, are going to be all alphabetical. Um, and we've that, done that, I think, for good reasons, yeah. like, just because, you know, there's so many contributions that it's really hard to do anything but an alphabetical authorship, I, I think. I mean, I think it's fair. However, 
you know, we have postdocs who lead these papers, right, who spend a year working on this paper, doing nothing else, doing a fantastic job, and it's an alphabetical authorship. They're not first author. And so that has caused a little bit of, I wouldn't say conflict, really, you know, but not everyone is happy with that. Um, for good reasons also, you know, people want to make sure that when they're applying for jobs, it's clear that like this is their stuff. So in our papers, we have corresponding authors. And so, you know, if a postdoc or grad student leads a paper, they're a corresponding author. And I think it's clear like that it's their work. Um, but it is super tricky. And when you have so many people in a collaboration, I mean, invariably, different people do different amounts of work, right? So yes. some people have spent a year on the paper, someone else, you know, has done a few observing sessions and maybe not even read it. And, and they're all alphabetical. <laughs> um, but I don't know any better way to do it. I, I think that we just need to work together and also trust that, you know, participation ebbs and flows. Some people will contribute more to one thing, some people more to another thing. In the end, um, the group is generally really good. Like people want to be doing the science. They're really excited about the science. We don't have people who are just trying to like freeload and not contribute at all. Um, but it, it is tricky though. It's, it's very tricky. It, it is tricky and it's, becoming increasingly more tricky as we get huge collaborations and start to award prizes for them. Um, you know, yeah. cause it's gotta be, it's gotta be very disheartening to be someone on LIGO on, in, in LIGO. And you know, you, you have this monumental discovery and what if you're the fourth guy on the list or the fourth girl on the list, you know, and you know that the top prize in physics, the thing that's going to define your career, it only goes to the top three. But you yeah. might have done, you know, just as much work as number three yeah. or number two. Yeah, I think you just can't get too hung up on those external prizes and recognition. I mean, they're nice. I think most people aren't doing science for that reason, though. You're I mean, right. Yeah, you're you know, exactly like, right. I'm not doing it expecting to get a prize. I'm doing it because I like it and, and uh, it's my job, <laughs> you know? Exactly. You know? You're we exactly, can't all but... to get, get prizes for doing our jobs, but, but you're right. It is, it is hard. The same thing happens on smaller scales as well, right? I mean, we're all applying, you know, maybe not for the Nobel Prize, but for NSF grants and smaller prizes and awards. And um, it's all a little bit, not completely capricious, you know, but there is a level of capriciousness to it, depending on like who the reviewer might be for your NSF grant or who's on the committee for such and such an award. And I think you just can't get too hung up on it. Um, I agree with you. I agree with you completely. I, I think, you know, just like if you're going to be a, a, if you want to be an NFL player, maybe you, you might, you might say to yourself, you want to win a Super Bowl, but your expectation is just to get on a team in the NFL, to just play at the top level and see where it goes from there. And the same is said for science. The goal of the scientist is to be able to put themselves in a position where they can do the research they want to do. They can play on the team they want to play on and the, and the awards sort of fall in after that. But I do have a, a serious question about this because I talked to Francis Halsen uh, like maybe two months ago. And are you familiar with Francis Halsen? No. He is the uh, founder, I guess, the, the man behind the idea that is Ice Cube. And okay. Ice yeah. Cube, you know, had a monumental year. It detected these cosmic neutrinos, which it was able to use multi-messenger astronomy to figure out the source. And I had him on, and I was talking, and I was like, this might very well be Nobel Prize-worthy science. And he insisted to me that he he doesn't care about that. 
you know, and this is the thing that all scientists tend to say to me. Mm -hmm. They don't, you know, they don't worry about that. But I saw something in his eye. Like when I said, Francis, you have the opportunity to win a Nobel Prize. I saw something in his face, like the way that he (laughs) reacted. He couldn't hide the fact that it was it was very meaningful to him. And even though he was telling me outright that that he doesn't think about that stuff much. I feel like there is something there that all of us, you know, we can say we don't want it all we want, but I, I, I think that maybe a lot of us are, are hiding that, that we actually do want that. And so you're saying you, you don't want it at all. Is Oh, I don't know. I don't know that I said I don't want it Oh, at right. All. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if I won Nobel Prize, I'd be pretty happy. Yeah, but, um, but you don't work for it, is what you're, I guess, getting at. You you don't you don't like yeah. wake up in the morning and say I'm going to go do Nobel Prize winning science today. <laughs> no, I mean, well, I think I think yeah. I mean, it'd be, it'd be I think nanograms chance of getting a Nobel Prize. We're not going to get it for the detection of gravitational waves because it's been done. Right. I do think there's a chance though. I mean, there's some kinds of physics that we can test with our experiment that's not able able to be tested with LIGO. There's also like um, really interesting pulsar systems one could find that could result in a Nobel Prize. So it's not like a completely crazy concept, but it's very unlikely. Yeah, and I, did you see this week? I saw that, and I don't know the details. I haven't looked into it. I just saw it in passing. There was a LIGO scientist. I think they were at Syracuse University. They left the collaboration, and they have published a paper claiming that the LIGO detections are actually not real gravitational wave detections. Oh, yeah, I heard about this. this. Yeah. And now I'm not sure of the science. I'm not sure of actually what he's claiming to have found or what what he thinks he found. Yeah, I mean, I am not an expert on this, but I have talked to my LIGO colleagues about it. And, I mean, according to them, they've gone back and forth with this group um, they haven't just ignored it. Like they've gone back and forth and tried to get them to understand their analysis method. And the group, as far as I understand, just has like fundamental misconceptions about mm. the way the data are taken and the noise modeling and, and their claims just really don't have any, I don't know, credence. Like they're just not, I think they're just bogus. Um, okay. But they're not, they're not, you know, complete quacks though. I mean, they're scientists. Yep. Um, this but is I how think science works. Yeah, it's how science works. I think it's good. I mean, I think even if a paper has a thousand authors on it, everyone should read it critically. I think that's great. And I think LIGO, it's really hard because they don't make their data public. Like, I can't go and just get the data and look at it. And it's very opaque, I think, like how the data analysis is done and what the data look like. Um, We're trying to do things a lot differently in Nanograph. Like, every time we publish a new upper limit, we release all the data. It's all there. It's all public. Anyone can grab it. Anyone can look at it. Um, it's fairly straightforward to look at. Like we can provide software and uh, instructions, you know, so we're trying to get around that so that when we do make a detection, um, it'll be easy to verify yeah, and there I th- won't be a lot of mystery. I think the various ways that you structure nanograph based on our conversation so far is, is incredibly suited for the science of today. The way that you handle authorship and the way that you handle, uh, you know, the way that you disperse data is is an inc- incredibly good compared to some of the other scientific institutions that exist today. What does NSF require? The people who fund you, the people who give you taxpayer dollars, if you will, or or maybe more debt 
put us in more debt. I don't know. <laughs> whatever they do, whatever wherever they find their money, I don't know if they're just printing more and throwing it at you. But whatever they do, what do they require in terms of data release? Do you have to give the data to the public? I mean, NS- no, not at all. I mean, NSF doesn't have any specific requirements. I mean, they fund LIGO, and LIGO has very strict policies um, where you know they don't release their data. Um, we just chose to do that. I mean, I don't think NSF stipulates that in any way at all. When we re- when we write proposals, we need to have a data management plan, so we need to tell them like what we're going to do with the data. Um, our radio telescopes do have policies, however, though. So we use two radio telescopes, the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia and Arecibo in Puerto Rico. Both of them have policies that data that are taken with the telescopes need to be made available after, gosh, I think it's 18 months. I might be wrong. It's something like that. Um, we don't worry about it because we make it public anyway, but they do require the data to be made public. And those are National Science Foundation funded facilities. Um, yeah. So even though our project itself doesn't have rules, the telescopes have rules. Right. I I was under the impression, and I guess it's a false impression, that data collected with National Science Foundation money was was in in a vague sense, you know, public domain, in the sense that it belongs to the people and it it was obligated to be released. Am I wrong? Well, I don't think that's true because lots of science projects don't release their data. I mean, LIGO is a good example, right? Yeah. Um, well, I wonder but, if they have intentions however, to release it. I agree it. with you, though. Like, I think if our tax dollars are paying for this science to be done and are supporting these projects, I think it's crazy that all the data aren't released. I think I think all data should be out there for anyone who wants to to look at it. Um, so I, I would agree with you that I think NSF should have such a policy, um, but they do not, as far as I know. Yeah, maybe I thought it was such common sense in my brain that I, I thought it was actual policy. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. I mean, if, if my tax dollars are paying for something, I'd like to benefit from it, you know? And all of our tax dollars are supporting these facilities. And I don't know why, like LIGO, for instance, um, and it's not just LIGO. I'm not trying to pick on LIGO. There's lots of other facilities like particle physics facilities or even optical telescopes that never release their data and radio telescopes do. I don't know, like, where that cultural thing came from, whether that's NSF dictated or it's just, like, the way the community decided to, to act. Um, I just don't know. Yeah, I I don't know either. And I'm wondering if the data will be released, but but you know they just claim that it's still in in the annals analysis phase or or something of the sort. But I definitely think that there should be plans for the data to be released. It doesn't have to be right away, right? Because people then people will be scooping your your results or whatever. But but there should definitely be a timeline under which the data. Collected with our tax dollars, as you mentioned, uh, should be released to people to analyze, high school students to analyze, uh, college students to look at for for projects and things of the sort. It's weird that it's not. It's definitely weird. And it seems anti-science in the sense that scientists put their ideas out there to be tested and verified by multiple sources. And I guess in these large collaborations, they feel like they have enough sources within, but... Yeah, I mean, for LIGO, though, one thing that I just should clarify is they have released the discovery data, like, I think. So, like, I think for the original detections, you can go and you can look at, like, that data, you know, like, for that discovery. Right. Um, So if I want, I've actually never tried to do it, but if I want, I think I could download, like, the LIGO data for those discoveries, um, but I can't get just, like, the open data 
um, to search myself for new things, right? Right. So, so I think I think the point is, and like this is this team that you know discredits the LIGO work. They they were able to get the um, discovery data, so I can get that. Um, but I can't get just the data from the run, so I can like run my own kind of search on it. And I, I do think LIGO has some plan, like within so many years it'll be released. Um, but I feel like it's a pretty long time. And I wish I, I don't know. I wasn't. Yeah, I haven't done any research. Yeah, now, now that we're talking about yeah. it, I'm wondering if there's a logical reason, and that reason might be size. Like, where do you store all the data? It's tough to put it in, a, in an online repository, I imagine, because there's just such a ma- like. Do you know how much the Green Bank Telescope data wise takes every oh, thirty I mean, minutes? Well, I mean, our pulsar observations. We are taking hundreds of terabytes an hour sometimes. Like. You know, we, we take a lot of data. Um, our file sizes are are huge. Right. Um, and so, so to give people a scale. We're if you, talking like petabytes of data. Right. Um, uh, even a day if you have like a really high precision, fast sample timing project. Yeah. So to give people a scale, if you go to Walmart, it's going to cost you $60 to buy a one terabyte hard drive. Right. Most computers yep. you buy on, on brand new aren't going to come with a terabyte of storage in them. They're going to come yep. with you know a fraction of that, and so Nanograv in the in the way that it looks at pulsars takes hundreds of you said hundreds of terabytes in how long? Uh, I'm trying to do the calculation. So like, I mean, we could take a hundred terabytes in a in a day if we observed at the absolute highest sampling rate and precision. Nanograv doesn't do that though, so we might get hundreds of terabytes like a year, something like that. Okay, so the, it's it's big data. It's everything in science it's is big, big data. data. I mean, like just to put it in perspective, we have um, a petabyte disk here at WVU where we like copy all the um, data over, all the Green Bank data over, mm-hmm. and I don't know, it's less than a year old and it's almost full, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. uh, and that's a petabyte, and we don't observe on the telescope all the time. You know, that's maybe like five percent of the observing time on the telescope. Yeah, and so to give you guys a scale, she says she transfers over the data from Green Bank. Now I know Green Bank is quite primitive; they're out there. You know, I I was talking about on the podcast last time. Uh, there's people in West Virginia living near Green Bank that still don't know the Civil War is over. You know, they're still hunkered down because they just haven't had any contact with <laughs> human beings. They're so out there in the in the woods of West Virginia. So I'm pretty sure that they have to you know load a guy up with a sack and he has to walk that data from green bank all the way <laughs> actually it's not that bad um do they have wires run I it, it's, oh yeah we have a really good optical um connection down to like there's a optical fiber it's, so so do you remember like the infrastructure improvement um funds i don't know it's like a decade ago um anyway they supported a fast link between green bank and wvu so we actually have like a pretty fast link between Green Bank and WVU. So we can transfer our data over the network. Um, it's really not so bad. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. I'm I'm joking a little bit, people. But Green, I, I do encourage you It is you very to, remote. It is really remote. You should um, take a tent and go camp at Green Bank for like, you know, a week or two weeks. Just f- understand how good you have it. Go there. You can't even use a microwave there. You use a microwave, the government comes knocking on your door like, did, did you microwave that hot pocket for two minutes, sir? Because we only allow a minute and a half around here, or else you're going to mess with our data. That that that's the type of stuff. You know, if you make coffee or too early in the day, they'll come knocking on your door. 
we like it down there. We have a cabin. It's um, beautiful. Down there uh, in Pocahontas County, our cabin's down by the Greenbrier River. We really like going there. It's kind of nice not to have cell phone service, you know, for a little bit, get away from it all. Yeah, I remember going there with a, a couple friend. It was like 12 of us, I think. We went maybe th- three or four years ago. And some of the people were like, wait a minute. You, like they, they didn't quite, they couldn't compartmentalize the idea that there's no cell phone service. Like even though they had been briefed beforehand, they couldn't fathom the idea that, wait a minute, you were serious? There's no 4G yeah. LTE around here? What are you talking about? <laughs> They're like holding their phones up in the air. Like, are you sure yeah. it's over here? It's yeah. funny. We, we have a camp every summer for high school students and they come from like all over the country to Greenbank. And they're so attached to their phones. And um, it's gotten really bad, actually, like the past year or two. Like their phones are kind of like extensions of themselves. And they can't survive. Like they're, even though we told them there's no service, they still walk around with these phones all week, like expecting somehow to get a signal. And we keep, we say, turn it off. You're not going to get a signal. Yeah, they don't understand it, you know? And uh, it's really, it's really funny to see them. By the end of the week, they're good. Like they've sort of got it. But it takes a few days for them to kind of come down from like checking the phone every five minutes. Yeah, they're still refreshing the email every time, not realizing nothing's coming in, you know, just re- yeah. refreshing it over and over because I, I think I do that sometimes even. But it, I do encourage people, I think you could just go there. You don't even need to schedule. You could just show oh, up yeah. at Green I mean, There's a visitor center. Um, in the winter, I think it's like not open Mondays and Tuesdays, so you might want to check the hours. But you can just show up and they have buses that will give you a tour around the site. There's a little cafe, there's exhibits and... If you do go and you like to bike, you should bring your bikes. There's a whole amazing network of trails all over the site. Um, if you like to hike, like it's just a really neat place. Yeah, I was there. I got to climb, I don't know, is it the 90 meter? That might be wrong. 90 foot telescope. I don't know. It's the second biggest one there. I got to climb. There's a 140 foot telescope. Maybe that's the one. The 140, yeah, I think so. I got to climb that one. And I want to climb the Green Bank telescope too, but you know. They'd get mad if I just kind of hopped the fence and started scaling my way. Yeah, you'd be in trouble. But you can climb it if you come at the right time and arrange it. So if you want to come back, let us know. We could talk to people and see if we could get you up there. It's oh, pretty neat. That's what I, yeah. See, this is what I'm talking about. I, I always tell people uh, when I when they ask me how the podcast is going, I always you know tell them how good of a networking tool it is. It's it's such a good way to, to get to know people in this. Because everyone... There's there's like two breeds of scientists out there. There's the breed of scientists that doesn't want to talk to the public at all. And then there's the breed of scientists that absolutely loves it and can't wait for an opportunity to do it. I've had I, – I, a lot of people I contact are the per, the people who are like, I, I'm busy doing research. I don't want to – you know, I don't want to share my ideas with a bunch of people. But when you can find people like you who are willing to sit down and, and educate you know, vast amounts of people – um, not just people in the United States, but people ever. I have people watching from Kuwait, the Philippines. It blows my mind. Like, I, I don't even, countries I've never heard of before. Bangladesh. You know, I got some Bangladeshians tuning in and. That's great. It's, it's fantastic that people like you are willing to sit down and, and, and talk to them and educate them because there's a lot of people out there who maybe don't have the means to learn, to, don't have the means to go to an American university or a European university and, and learn at the highest level. But what they do have is a connection to the internet. Because of that, if you go to the some of the poorest places in the entire world, you'd be surprised to find that, oh my God, this place is more connected than Green Bank, West Virginia. 
And that <laughs> is, is, is magical. And so you open up this form of communication and, and I just thank you for, for participating in it. I think it's great. And I think yeah, it's, it's not fun. enough. I'm happy to do it. Yeah, so I want to, uh, transition into questions from our Patreon supporters. Uh, if you, if you support the Patreon, if you support the show on Patreon, you get to ask questions. You get to see the upcoming guests. You only need to do $5. You could do $1. You could do $1, $2, $5 a month. Whatever you, whatever you have, whatever you want, if you want to support the show, it's free to listen to. You're not going to, you know, get any extra benefits that way, but it's free to support. And I'm not talking to you more. I'm not like, please give me money. I'm talking to the, <laughs> the people listening. Uh, so they, they have some questions and we'll, we'll ask a few. Uh, well, actually, before, because some of them are, are in reference to the Pulsar Search Collaboratory. So let's talk about that first. Okay, cool. So what, can you explain to people what it is? Yeah, so um, the Pulsar Search Collaboratory is a program that we started about 10 years ago now. Um, and it's a collaboration between WVU and the Green Bank Observatory. And the aim is to involve high school students in searching for pulsars using the Green Bank Telescope. Now, we've had like over 2,000 high school students over the past 10 years um, analyzing Green Bank Telescope data. They found seven pulsars. Um, the program is still going on. It's kind of morphed a little bit. Like when we started it, most of the training was in person at Green Bank. Now we do most of the training online. Um, they attend a six-week online virtual course. They analyze the data through an online database. We have a discussion board. So we have students from all over the country, California, down to Florida, up to Maine, um, all communicating and looking at Pulsar data. It's really fun. What made you uh, – first I should ask, who is, the, who is the founder of this idea? Well, this started back when Duncan Lorimer and I came to WBU, and Sue Ann Heatherly um, was an education and public outreach specialist down at Green Bank. Um, she still is. And when we came here, she came up and she said, hey, I'd really like to get high school kids involved in astronomy, and could we talk, and could we start a project? And we said, that sounds great. And so Sue Ann and Duncan and I wrote a proposal to the NSF um, back in 2007, a while ago, um, asking for funding, and it got funded. Um, and so that's the story, and it's still, you know, Sue Ann and um, Duncan and I, who are running the program, we have another proposal now funding it. Um, it's become like a little more of an education research project, so a big part of it now is working with education researchers in the physics department here, like to really see the impact of the program on students and their careers and their science identity and confidence. Um, so it's, it's been really great. Did something in your high school career or your life make you want to pursue getting high school students involved? What, what was it that made you think this was such a good idea? Um, there's a couple reasons. I mean, honestly, one of them is just practical. Like 10 years ago, we had a ton of data. Um, we had data from this new survey. We needed people to help look at it, honestly. You know, so part of this was like person power, <laughs> you know, give us students to help us get through all our data. Um, the idea is they look at like candidates that come out of the survey and help us determine whether they're pulsars or someone's microwave or some other source of interference or noise. Um, so that was part of it. The other part, though, was, of course, wanting to reach out to students and kind of give them a taste of what science was like. Um, I would say when I was in high school, like I really had no clue what scientists actually did. I mean, I never 
talk to scientists or work with scientists or had the opportunity to kind of do real science. Um, I think it would have made a difference to me. I mean, I ended up a scientist anyway, but I feel like if you don't have that opportunity, it's really easy to lose interest, you know, and not know what research is about and that it's a fun thing to do. Um, so I also just really wanted to help kind of reach students and give them the opportunity to do real science, especially yeah, students in West Virginia. I mean, lots of students in this state don't have access to even like computers back then. A lot of students back then didn't even have computers in their house. And so having the opportunity to do a project like this, you know, at, at school and an after school club, was a really valuable opportunity for them. Oh, yeah. And those kids also don't have access to 4G LTE if they're in Pocahontas County. So, yep. <laughs> and they still don't. So imagine that. But to, to transit, I think it's, I think that what you're doing is, is very good. I think you, you, you brought something up that's important. You're, if you're not teaching kids, if you're not giving them access to all of the options and research is one of the options that you're not showing them even exists when they're in high school. When I was in high school, if I would have asked like a career advisor, like, Hey, what, what does a scientist do? Like, what if I go to school for astrophysicists? What are my job options? I think they would just look at me blank. Like, what? What do you mean an astro? You can't be an astro. What are you talking about? Get out of here. You know, you're in the middle of Pennsylvania. You can't be doing astrophysics. What do you even mean? That's not even an option. You know, I I feel like that's the response I would have gotten. Maybe not verbally, but, you know, that's the sort of thing that would have been communicated to me. Yeah, these kids, lots of these kids, especially like from rural West Virginia, they don't even know that like a scientist is a job. And they're shocked by things. Like when I tell them, grad school doesn't cost a lot of money. Like you can go to grad school and you get paid for it. You get a fellowship. You're not going to get rich, but you get paid to go to school. And they're shocked. They, they had no idea. You know, their feeling is like, that's not a real thing. I can't survive on that. Um, people who get PhDs have to be rich, you know, in order to get a PhD because it costs all this money. So just very simple misconceptions like that, you know, we're able to correct. And I think that makes a big difference. Yeah. Oh, and, and um, you know, even if you did have to pay for your PhD, I'm telling you right now, kids listening, Sally May will give you $2 million, okay, just for nothing. Now, they'll charge you a 45% interest rate, okay? But if you ask them for $2 million, they'll hand it right to you. So you don't have to be rich. You just have to be willing to be in debt forever. But <laughs> but no, when, when it comes to actually like, you know, getting your PhD in, in physics, people do get a, like real confused. I get some looks like people think I'm lying. They're like, so what do you do for money? I'm like, oh, I get... I get paid to, you know, do research. They're like, huh? What? What do you mean you get paid? What do you mean you get paid to look at black holes all day? You don't get paid to do that. And it's, it's really odd because so many people, like you said, don't even know. So many kids don't even know that a scientist is a job. They Mm -hmm. don't even know that there's people out there doing research and that you can get study. You can get money to, to, literally pick something you're interested in write a good reason why you want to look at it and and then you know you can get paid to do it yep it's an amazing job it's it 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 truly is uh fantastic and there needs to be more communication with with people with students in high school because you know i remember taking these like weird exams uh, when i was in school these sort of like what do you want to do when you grow up exams? Have you ever taken one of these things? Uh-huh. 
Yeah, so you like fill in a bunch of bubbles. Like, how do you react if someone throws a bottle of water at your head? Do you fight them? Do you walk away? And somehow that's supposed to tell you whether or not you're a police officer. I don't know. I think these tests aren't very good at what they do. But a lot of the options for real adults aren't even on there. You know, it's like, should you go to the military? Should you become a police officer? Should you be an accountant? Those are the options that that they're giving you or feeding you in high school. And specifically at my high school, there was nobody, nobody who would be like, Brendan, you should go on to be a physicist because it it wasn't there. It it didn't exist. And I want to get the program that you're doing involved with my school to let these kids know, because I'm, I'm wondering, like we all, when we're four or five years old, we all look up and say, Hey mommy, Hey daddy, why is the sky blue? Why are the clouds there? You know, why does the moon... I always, I, When I was a kid, I was always perplexed by the fact that the moon seemed to follow me. Like, I'd be driving in the <laughs> yeah. car, and I would look at the moon, and I'd be like, Mom, why does the moon follow us? Why is it always right above me? Like, why isn't? Why don't we drive away and it, and it moves? Yep. And so many people, they go to school, and they get bored, and they don't want to be there, and they feel like they're wasting their time. And that curiosity gets beaten out of them over time. Yeah. I mean, and, I see that when I give talks, like... I get great questions from little kids, like the best questions ever, because they're not afraid to ask questions. And the older kids, I mean, I just brought my um, my sixth graders class came to our planetarium and we gave, gave a show. And my seven-year-old came and brought one of his friends who's eight. And at the end of the planetarium show, I said, does anyone have any questions? And you know who had the most questions? The seven and eight-year-old. Oh, <laughs> they yeah. had all these fantastic questions. And even the sixth graders, like they're already a little afraid to ask questions they don't want to look dumb they don't want to look like too interested in front of their friends and it was kind of I don't know it made me a little sad I mean I think even even at the age of 11 or 12 you're starting to kind of lose that wonder a little bit and I think our school system is to blame I think partly you know we don't really encourage like inquiry-based learning there's a lot of like memorization and this is right and this is wrong I agree um, with you completely. Yeah, you yeah, might. You, you, it's sad. You seemed a little hesitant to to say the school system was to blame. Um, I'll t- I'll just st- say it. The school system is almost completely to blame. It is it is an incredible the way that we do education, specifically educate young people in America. I think is very very counterintuitive to how the human brain actually works. Because I yeah. cannot sit and learn for eight hours a day or however long. You know. I, I cannot, I couldn't do it. It is not an effective way for me to learn things, to sit in a classroom, to, to plug through examples or to watch, you know, sick. I feel like I watched so many sitcoms when I was in high school. Like the teachers just ran out of stuff to do. So they were like, here, watch Modern Family. Really? Yeah, that happened a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I had one class in particular, psychology class, I think, where I watched, I must have watched two seasons of Modern Family. I think that's all we did. Modern Family? Yeah, Modern Family. I don't, okay, maybe that it's... never happened to me when I was in school. Yeah. Well, maybe Modern Family didn't exist when you were in school. It did not, right? no. So maybe if it did, maybe we'd be in, having a different conversation. But yeah, it, it, it's it's really poor. You Standardized tests are partially to blame. I think that the standardized tests are a horrible way to gauge you know, intelligence. And, and I see some grad schools actually phasing them out, which I like. I think I saw that Harvard doesn't even require you know gre scores which is like the essentially for people listening that's like the what's that test you take when you're a high school student 
the SAT. SAT. Yeah, it's like SAT for smarter people. That's essentially what the the GRE is. An SR, an SAT for people who have a specific skill set, whether it be physics or chemistry or whatever. Yeah. And some some are even phasing that out. Yeah. So I would call myself a yeah. decent uh, a decent student, a decent physicist. I, I I do well. I get good grades. I can you know progress in research. But I did horrible on the physics GRE. Like absolutely yeah. horrid. Yeah. I mean, we've we've just dropped it. Well, not just a couple of years ago, we dropped it from our admissions criterion too, because we just didn't see any correlation between the physics GRE scores and how successful a student would actually be in the end at research um, and even classes. There was a you know very weak correlation. Um, it, it tests whether you're good at taking tests, <laughs> and that's exactly. not. Yeah. I mean, I don't have that. I don't have to do that skill ever as a professional astronomer. You know, no one's coming in and giving me standardized tests. Um, so it seems like a silly thing to base entry on. So we dropped that a few years ago and I think it's, it's really good. Um, it's been shown to be biased. I mean, against women, against minorities. Um, and yeah, we still require the general GRE, um, but just not the physics one. Yeah. I I think uh, the general GRE, I guess is, is, I mean, I wouldn't call it good. I wouldn't call it, I don't know if I even call it useful, but. It's it's a good way to thin the herd, if you will, you know, if someone – maybe that's not what you use it for, but that's what I picture in my head. I know a lot of schools do use different factors to sort of thin the amount of applications. And I think that the general GRE is, can be good for that because if you need to be like, all right, if you got below a, a 50, maybe we can't look at your application because we have 70,000 applications to go through. So again, I'm not saying that's what you use it for, but but I think that it could be used as that sort of statistic. Yeah, and you need to go on something. And it's yes. really hard, especially we get a lot of international students and GPAs vary like wildly from country to country, you know? So yeah, and it, it's, it it's also, really hard to compare. They also depend on like rates. what classes you've you've taken yeah. and it's it's not a perfect comparison to look at GPAs. I, I agree. That's why when when I when it came time for me to apply to grad school, I was like I can't I cannot just send in an application on paper and allow them to pick and choose I, because I just don't have f- confidence in that system. I lost confidence in that system. I, for whatever reason, aspects of my ambition of my personality don't show up well on paper. So I, I called every single universe. I called the professors on the phone. I tried emailing them, but they're notoriously bad at emailing. So I called them all on the phone, their office phones, which most of them are disconnected. And that's actually how I got in the PhD program I'm in because I was like, I cannot allow this piece of paper to dictate my future. I need to actually communicate with these people. And, mm-hmm. and I did that. And, and I encourage more people to do that. But yeah. Yeah. So we talked about uh, your Pulsar search collaboratory. Now I'll ask the, the Patreon questions that I got in uh, regarding this. One of them uh, I think is a very good question. Do you ever bring in children that are troubled in one way? And I think by that, they mean, you know, are maybe in, sort of crime, maybe involved in drugs, that sort of thing. Do you ever bring in kids Gosh. who are like that? What a good question. So so I'll say we do try to um, recruit students from all over the country, um, and we've made a specific effort to try to get to schools both in very rural areas and also in urban areas. You know, So we have students from like around the D.C., Baltimore area. As far as students who are troubled. I mean, we haven't made any specific effort to do that. I think it's a, it's a good and a bad idea. <laughs> um, it's a good idea 
because I think science and the involvement in a program like this could really turn someone's life around. I mean, they get mentored by like real scientists, by grad students, by this whole community. They get the opportunity to do something important, right? Like they can find a pulsar. That's important. That's something that not many people have done. Um, I think the problematic thing is we have a camp at Green Bank every summer. Green Bank is like really remote. You know, kids need to be fairly independent and trustworthy and they they're there like on their own you know for a week Mm -hmm. um and we don't have a lot of like we don't have any counselors or people who are experts at dealing with students with different um disabilities or um any kind of like psychological issues i think it's a great idea i just think we need to change the program a little bit so we have some capacity and some skills in doing that um yep yeah, I, I, yeah, I was thinking about this well, yesterday when I was reading the Patreon questions. I was thinking about this last night. I'm thinking it might be a good idea, and I'm not telling you to, to do this, of course, but it might actually be a, a good idea to set up sort of a drug rehabilitation center in Green Bank, West Virginia, where you can take people completely isolated from their old lives and, and give them a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning in the, in the form of science. You know, mm-hmm. we need to come up with creative ways to handle opioid addiction, and I think that that might actually be an effective one. Maybe not. That's a, that's a good idea. I like that idea. Um, I just saw there's a great documentary called Recovery Boys about a center like this in West Virginia, in like really rural West Virginia, where young men go to get off opiates. And there's no science theme to that, but they um, do music. Um, my friend Brandy's a music coach there and they get them like really immersed in music and farming and it seems to really work. And I think yeah, it's science, science could be another thing in Pocahontas County. My God, I mean, you can't really get more cut off and remote and away from bad influences there. So I, mean, I think that's yeah. a fantastic idea. And then it's a, such a problem in this state in particular. I mean, it'd be nice if we could use the GBT, you know, this resource, to kind of help ad- address that problem. I mean, that sounds like a, a wonderful idea. Yeah, that, it's it's something that's necessary because you, you have to ask the question. This is a question that's not being asked enough, I think. Why are people getting involved in drugs? Well, I can speak from experience. I was a drug addict when I was – when I, I started doing drugs when I was 12 years old oh, because, of, because of the environment I lived in. And I did not get clean. I failed seventh grade. If – it's amazing that I did not drop out of high school and become an absolute and become a heroin addict. Frankly, um, if if heroin was more popular, was the drug of choice to be used ten years ago, if it was at the boom that it's at now, then I do not think I would be where I am right now. I yeah, don't think I'd probably be. be dead. I would very well. I very likely might be dead. And what got me. What, what sort of got me the salvation was this want, this need to be involved in science. I needed something. You know, why do kids get involved? Why do kids get involved in crime? Why do kids get involved in drugs? Well, it's because they can find like-minded people mm-hmm. that they can identify with. Because yeah. so many people, like, you know, so, so many of these kids, they don't have anyone to identify with. They don't have anyone to talk to. They don't have anyone to, to, co- to cooperate with on anything. And when they can find a group of people, and maybe those group of people are doing drugs, maybe they're robbing people, maybe they're, you know, breaking into cars, whatever they're doing. The point is they're they're doing it together. And that's so important for young people to find other individuals who are willing to cooperate with them, who are willing to talk to them, who are willing to 
be concerned about them. And it just so happens that a lot of those feelings you can get by interacting with people in the drug community. Why do street gangs exist? For that exact reason. You take troubled youth, you put them together, they become friends, and the one thing that they share, the one thing they have in common is crime. So they keep doing crime because crime is what brings them together. Mm-hmm. You know, So you need to find a way to take these kids, take these people, adults even, and give them a sense of purpose and give them a sense of cooperation that yep. isn't in crime. And I think science is a very effective way to do that. I totally agree. Yeah. I have a seventh grader and I would say, yeah, I mean, his middle school, it's really mixed. Like he is part of kind of a nerdy sciencey group of kids. And so he's got his posse and that's great. Um, but there are lots of kids there who are from poorer communities and they just don't have, it's really sad. They just don't have the same opportunities. Um, and we need to figure out a way to reach them. Like when we, we go to schools and we give talks to try to recruit students to our program. Um, but it's, it's really hard. Like, like, because often the teachers that want to work with us are the ones teaching like the AP classes or the advanced classes. So most of the students that we get, honestly, are the students who don't need us <laughs> so much, you know, yeah. like they already are on the right track. Mm-hmm. They already really like science and it's a great program for them. Like they get to advance their knowledge of science, but it's not kids like my son that I really want to attract. You know, I, exactly. I want to get to kids yeah. who haven't even thought about science as a career, who have like really low self-esteem, who think they could never do something like this and like change their mind. But it's just so hard like when you go to classes like that um well there's just a lot of resistance most of the kids you know they're not paying attention and to, to reach that one or two kids in that class who could really really benefit it's, it's hard to identify them and yes I, I just don't know what the answer is that's why you need someone that's why i this is what i i, I look at if you look at football like nfl players who have come from the you know downtown detroit in the worst possible areas and they make a success of themselves. They can go back and talk to the kids at their high school and make them sort of change the way that they're living their lives. They they have the power to do that because there's a connection there. Because mm-hmm. the kids can look and say, oh, wait, you did have it as bad as me and you got where you're at. You yeah. know? And sometimes I think when you're talking to, to children, they, they don't look at it. like They're like, well, you know, you have nice shoes. You're, you're wearing a nice suit. What, what do we have in common? You know, this might be possible for you, but it's not possible for me. Yeah, I because think I saw, so I important. felt a lot of that. I felt a yeah. lot of that as a kid. I mean, you, sh- you, I hope that you go into schools or back to your old high school and stuff because you have a very inspiring story. And we try to do that here with students at WVU. I mean, we get students out to give talks, but the best thing to do is to send students to a school where they were at. You know, they were a student there, and they can go back and say, "Hey, you know, look what I've made <laughs> out of myself." And yeah. we have students who have really powerful stories. You know, I'm working with a student whose mother died of drug addiction. His father wasn't in the picture. Like he had a rough life and he's, you know, an undergraduate student here. He's applying to PhD programs. He's doing great. And so getting someone like that going in and like just being honest about their background um, is so important because I think lots of students look at people like us and think, oh, they were just like born with a silver spoon and they never had any struggles or challenges. And that's absolutely not true. Yes, we we all have our our share of struggles, but so many people don't want to communicate that. Yeah. Because they're 
they're almost married with the idea that that was a different life. Like that, that's how I feel. Like, I don't, I don't, I would never communicate what I just told you with like a colleague on a normal day. You know, I'd be like, Hey, when I was 12 years old, I was addicted to drugs, you know, because that is not a good, it's not a good conversation starter. It's not a good thing to say. (laughs) And, and there's this fear within you when you, when you, you know, live that life, when you have parents who, like you just mentioned that, that student you're working with, when you have parents who are addicted to drugs or your your father's not in the picture, those are embarrassing things to communicate with other people. And so yeah. a lot of people, rather than using those things to influence others, they they hide it. They they put it away and they, they don't touch it because they don't like the idea that that was them. You know, they like to think, oh, I'm a scientist now. I wear nice clothes. I'm, you know, I've evolved into a good human. I drive a nice car. And and a lot of people don't like to stay married to who they used to be. Yeah, it's true. And so I I want to uh, add to the to the question now that we've finally come back to it. Um, do you bring in uh, troubled children? I think that I agree with you. What you said, it's a good and a bad thing because I look at myself when I was fourteen years old, and could it have helped me? It very well could have. But could I have showed up at Green Bank, West Virginia and started kicking components of the telescope because I was mad about being there? <laughs> yes, that is also possible, you know? And, and so it's, it's tough. It's a tough thing to, to try to it do. It is but... tough. I mean, they don't all need to come to Green Bank. We could right. start off small and involve people remotely, but then I just don't think it has the impact. Exactly. If you, if you I agree just with do you. Things remotely. I mean, people, people need to actually make a personal connection. I think it to have you. a yes. real impact on them. The place where it can really start is with the high school teachers. You know, if we can recruit fantastic teachers at high schools who want to work with us and who have daily contact with these students, I think that's the way to do it. You know, and that's that's probably where we should start. Yes. Yeah. And that and that brings up another sort of barrier to entry to children who are troubled is that generally, you know, children who, who aren't doing good in school, they don't have good relationship with teachers. And so, you know, if... If uh, you you want to find a teacher who's you know intimately related, not literally intimately, but you know who's closely related to to students, then uh, it might be tough to find teachers who are closely related to troubled students. So mm-hmm. that that might be something that would have to be you know really yeah. looked at and, stu- and studied. But I have another Patreon question here. Do you feel like your progress in your field has any way been impacted by the fact that you're a woman? That's a good question. I mean, yeah, I think so. I would say both in good and bad ways. I mean, I think um, there's a lot of attention to diversity and putting women forward for things. So I think there are some good things. For instance, I think I get invited to give more talks, probably than some of my male colleagues you know, because people want to have diversity in their speaker series. And so they're looking for female scientists to come. So I mean, there are some good things. Um, There also are bad things. I think often women just aren't taken as seriously like this happens to me sometimes, you know, go to a a conference and make a suggestion and no one will pay any attention to it. And then a man says the same thing five minutes later, and everyone's like, Oh, that's such a good suggestion. And it's, it's kind of unconscious. Um, I think it's, it's sort of an unconscious bias that people are becoming aware of, you know, but there's lots of stuff like that. Um, the first thing I said also, like, you know, kind of people trying to fill quotas and make sure that 
they have good representation from women, that can also be a problem too. Like, I think a lot of women are burdened with a lot of service responsibilities, like serving on committees, um, because they need, you know, and it's good to have diverse committees, right? Like you want good representation, but because there's so few women in the field, then we get asked to do these things a lot more. Um, so one thing I've struggled with is just like being able to say no um, and not serve on every single organizing committee or prize committee that I'm asked to be on because there's a ton of them. I get asked to do a lot more of them than I think most men do. So there are pluses and minuses. I think in general, it's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's good and I'm able to be a good role model. And I think in our collaboration in particular, we're pretty diverse. It's like I think in Ninograb, the group I work with, um, we're friendly to women. We have a lot of trainings. Like we really kind of focus on diversity and talk about it. Um, and so I, it's been very gratifying. Like I think we've really built a good, inclusive community, and it's nice to have been, been a part of that. I see. I want to go back to something you said because it's something I actually notice, like consciously notice. It's when you make a suggestion and it goes ignored, and then you know a, a, someone else will make the same suggestion and, and it'll be honored. Here's I I can recall a time when I would do this to my wife, but not on purpose. You know, we would be around maybe a group of friends, and she would say something that was funny. And whether it was the way that she presented it, or or the way that she, and when I say that, I mean like her tone of voice, her how quiet she is, or something of that sort. Um, I would I would repeat it so that it was actually heard, and I didn't do it consciously. I did it because I was like, oh, that's a funny joke and no one heard it. Let me retell it, you know, or that's mm-hmm. a, that's a good suggestion and no one heard it. Now that I notice I do that, because at the time, you know, it's just sort of subconscious. It's not something you, you notice you do, but I've sort of picked up on my own tendency to do it. And so now I try to, when I do like sort of, you know, retell the, retell the suggestion if it's not heard, uh, because I feel like she won't, she won't do that. She won't, you know, speak louder. Yeah. And, and so if I do that, then I, I'd be sure to give her credit. But that's something I notice I do. Yeah, and, that's great that you, that you give her credit. Yeah, and I, and think, I, I think a lot I think of people. I think that a do. lot of people, I mean, I think in science, this is really important too. Um, like the best thing is for male colleagues to just not call people out in an awful way, but at a meeting, you know, say something. You know, if someone else repeats a suggestion that a woman has made, say, oh, yeah, you know, Maura made that suggestion. That's a great suggestion. I'm glad you agree or something. You know, it doesn't need to be unpleasant, um, but just reminding people. Right. And it's just really valuable to have male colleagues who are kind of aware of that stuff. Um, yeah. So I think that's great that you, that you do that for your wife now. Yeah, try to do that because it, it is something I notice. And I, I feel like a lot of people, when they do it, I don't know if they're being malicious. You know, I don't know if they mean to to make you feel like your ideas aren't good enough. You know, I think it's just we're in a field where ideas are currency, you mm-hmm. know. And so many people you want to use that currency at, at any cost. I, th- I see a lot of it. I see a lot of idea taking. and And sometimes it's not like... Here's one thing I see a lot. I see someone propose a good idea, but it's an idea that they don't really want to work on or that they don't want to put effort into. They just thought of it. And then someone else will take the idea and actually run with it and actually put in the work. And I've seen people who have initially proposed the idea but didn't put in the work 
get a little sour at the people who did put in the work. I see that a lot. Yeah. And so, again, science is very much an idea-based currency type of field. And and sometimes we get a little bit too too much into, into, uh, geez, I don't even know what I'm saying. I don't even know what I'm saying. I don't. I'm just using words (laughs) and the words don't make any sense. So how about that? I do want to, you, you have, how many sons do you have? We've got three kids, three sons. You have three sons. Okay. Three kids. I want to ask you something. Do they ever look at what you and your husband do? Cause your husband's also an astrophysicist or a physicist. Mm -hmm. Do they ever look at that and they're like, wow, that's really cool. I want to do that. Do you get that at all? Or do you get the exact opposite? And they're like, wow, you guys are nerds. Oh, kind of both. I mean, I think when all of them were little, kids want to be like their parents when they're little. So like our you know, seven-year-old will often say, like, I'm going to be an astronomer and have an office right next to you and dad. Um, our older two, who are 13 and 11, they're kind of their own people now. I don't think either of them want to be astronomers or even scientists I think they're I wouldn't say they really push back against it but they're interested in their own things um I think they they've seen a lot of science like they've gone to lots of meetings with us and been to lots of telescopes so I think for them it's not so cool (laughs) like it's kind of like oh this is just what our parents do and you know they, they like it um yeah but I, I, I think, I think you it know, beat the excitement out of them a little bit, like just because they've like been exposed to it so much. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You sort of like, you know, you take that curiosity. They've explored it. A lot of kids don't have a chance to explore it, but they've had the fortunate they've had the fortunate ability to sort of explore that scientific curiosity. And they're like, mm, that's not for me. You know, and they've they've yeah. had that ability. And, you know, a lot of kids get that with sports. There's a lot of sports being played at, at you know, the eight-year-old to 12-year-old level and a lot of kids get to explore sports in that way they're like i'm curious about playing sports let me play sports oh wait sports isn't for me i don't like getting tackled so yeah it's good I think they might come back to it like i wouldn't be surprised if they do become scientists um but you know they might have to find it out on their own right <laughs> later yeah, on. yeah yeah so uh, how is the, how is the process of explaining to them what you do like your kids you know, five or so, I don't know what, I, I, I'm so bad with kids and like what age they start doing things. Like, I, I don't even know what age a typical child starts speaking at or learning their alphabet. <laughs> I need to like read up on this. Our 13 year old has just started speaking. No, he's, um, <laughs> I mean, they've always been involved in what we do and asked a lot of questions and stuff. And like, we often have visiting speakers over to our house for dinner and collaborators and we take them to meetings. Like, they've just been kind of immersed in astronomy. Um, so that we don't actually have many sessions where they're sitting at the table, like asking us astronomy questions, but it's just kind of like part of life. And they're just kind of, they're just immersed in it. Yeah. Does that happen ever? Do they ever like ask you a really insightful question? You're like, wow. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a weird balance for me to, to be a scientist and have a family, um, you know, a mother or a, a brother, or you know, my wife's family that, very much doesn't understand what it is that I do. And I have a real tr- tough time communicating with them what I do. Yeah, it's hard. It's such a different thing. Yeah, I can do outreach all day. I can explain, you know, I've I've spent many, many years in planetariums as an undergrad, you know, communicating to, geez, probably thousands of people. And I can communicate perfectly effectively to them what a pulsar is, what a neutron star is, what the sun is. I can do that. 
But when it comes to talking to my family, for some reason, I shell up. Like, I, I can't. And I, yeah. I, oh, I, mean, I don't yeah, know. I think it's a it's an attention span thing. Like, when you're in a planetarium, it's like people have come to learn. You you get that idea. But in America, we, we have this, this weird thing where we ask each other how we're doing, but we don't actually want an answer. Yeah. Like, I'll say, hey, Maura, how are you today? I want you, like, subconsciously, I want you to say, okay. Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for asking. How are you? And then I say, I'm good. And then we walk away. What we don't want is for the other person to say something that we're not expecting. Like, oh, I'm not feeling good today. I'm kind of sad. Like, oh, wait, what do I say to that? You know? Yeah. So when my family asks me, you know, how's work going? I have a real t- tough time, like, actually saying, oh, it's good. The black hole model I'm working on is blah, 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 blah. And because I feel like I lose them right away. Yeah. So, I I said my, my kids are, they're actually better because they've grown up with it. My parents for sure don't really get what I'm doing. And they think it's, I think they just, they, I think they think it's just um, like a lark, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, my dad in particular, like he's always worked like, you know, selling things, like actually something where you're making money. And exactly. He'll often say, like, I don't understand what, what you're getting paid for. Like, you're not helping. You're not, like, saving lives. You're not selling anything. You're not making anything. <laughs> like, yeah, what are like, you oh, doing? Where does you know? this like, fit in the capitalism? Like, why would anyone pay you to write a paper? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, yeah, who's is... the paper for? And, and he also doesn't get, like, why I'm doing it. Like, why would you write a paper if no one's making you write the paper and no one's paying you to write the paper? And I'm like, well, I want to. It's, you know, part of my job as a researcher. And the whole concept is just totally foreign. And I know he's proud of me, but I just don't think... If you're not a scientist, I think it can be hard to just understand our motivation and like why we do what we do. Yeah, it is kind of it's it's hard if you have like a capitalist mindset. Like you said, your dad, you know, was a, a salesman. He he sells things. It's, it's hard if you come from a a place where you're very much in like a capitalist type of market to look at science and be like, wait a minute, what service are you providing to citizens? You know, it's yeah. it's weird. One of the funniest interactions ever was when he came to Green Bank and he met up with the SETI guys there. Um, so these are the people who are searching oh, yeah. for extraterrestrial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And they've been doing it for like 40 years and never found anything. And he just laid into them. He was, he was like, why are we paying you to do this? Like, why is anyone paying you to do this? You've never found anything in 40 years. If I went 40 years without making a sale, you know, I would have been fired, you know, 39 yeah. years ago. And, and, uh. And and it was just it was a really funny interaction. It's 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 true. It's it's it can be weird. It can be weird if you're not used to it. But you know that's why I don't think the government gives the NSF money in hope hoping for a return on investment. You know, but the funny thing is they there is a little bit of a return on investment if you oh, look at all of the things that are you know so, like the screwdriver or the the uh, the screw gun. You know, the automated screwdrivers is one that I always think of. The during the Apollo Apollo missions, uh, they needed a way to make power tools automated. They couldn't just use a long extension cord, and so they created essentially the first battery pack, which went into the first screw gun, and that has probably made more money and profits for companies like Craftsman than the entire missions cost. So that well, yeah, I just want to argue with what you said though about yeah. most NSF funding doesn't produce in returns on investments. Like I strongly disagree with that. So I think even our project, even though it's esoteric, we're not building anything or designing anything. 
we are training students. They're going on. They're learning data science skills and analytical thinking skills. They're taking that into the workforce, startup companies. Um, we're getting lots of kids interested in science with this really cool stuff. You know, Nanograph gives a ton of public lectures. Lots of those kids get interested. They go on to be engineers and doctors. And I, I actually think if you calculated the return on investment from the money that NSF gives us, gives us for this project, I think it would be high. I think we are producing more economic output. Um, some of it, you know, indirectly, but yes. more than the money that they are paying us. I, should I, really, have, I really think it's, I agree it's worthwhile. I agree with you. And I should have clarified, I should have said the NSF doesn't require a direct return on their investment. They don't expect collaborations like you to, to say, oh, here, we have a surplus of money. Take it back. You know, they, yeah. they don't expect sure. that. But you, science absolutely does produce a lot for society in that regard, in that sort of roundabout way. So I, I I think what you're doing is absolutely fantastic. I think that, I hope that you keep doing it. I hope that you, you, you can continue making the Pulsar Search collaboration much better, involving many, many more students. And I, You plan I, to. Yeah, and I'm trying to play my part. I'm trying to get, you know, places that I'm into, that I'm connected to, you know, sort of involved. It's not working so far, but you know, <laughs> I'm trying. It's it's tough. It's tough to find a teacher who who wants to put in the extra work. You know, these teachers, a lot of teachers are already, you know, working their 8-hour days and they don't want to stay after school. They don't want to especially at this time of year it's dark at 4:30. No one wants to be at work at 4:30 when it's <laughs> dark out. You know, I have to drive home with my headlights on. No one likes that. That's not fun. So, I understand why teachers wouldn't want to. But here's what teachers need to understand, I think. They need to understand that the way education is structured right now, it's not helping anyone. So you need to go, as a teacher, you need to go the extra mile. And, and when I say education, I mean um, you know high school education. You need to be willing, if you're going to become a teacher, to put in the extra work to actually give kids real applicable education. And that's mm -hmm. where something like what you're doing comes in. Yep, I I agree. I think it's really really important. Do you ever we have, have lots of materials to help them? Do you ever have teachers who doubt like what you do? Like, is this a good idea? How do these how what are these kids actually learning? It's research. It's kind of abstract. Do you ever get that sort of idea? Maybe a little bit, but in general, not because we have a lot of resources for them to take into the classroom and sort of incorporate stuff they've learned from pulsars and radio astronomy into like their everyday course you know so we have like we're we have stuff that's really tied in to the learning aims in particular classes and so we i don't, I don't think we get that very much i think we, we make it easy for them to see the links yeah and what about in terms of nanograph do you get a lot of members of the astronomical community who are like this is way too ambitious you, there's too much noise there's too much there's too many factors that you're never gonna like this isn't gonna be successful do you get that i mean we always get some of that i mean i think every scientist gets some of that um in general, though, I think most people think we're on the right track. And I think the fact that we have this Physics Frontier Center Award shows that the community in general trusts us and think what we're doing is good and that we have a good chance of success. Yeah, I, you, you absolutely have to, to do that. Um, I feel like you can't express doubt in situations like this, right? It's like... It's like if you're on the Cleveland Browns and people give up on you before the season starts. That's got to be very disheartening, but you can't allow that to affect the tenacity that you play with 
on yeah, week one. Yeah, and we really don't have too much of that. And I think the LIGO detections have only helped. Um, our method is very similar to LIGO. You know, you can't argue that gravitational waves aren't out there. Um, you can't argue that the basic method won't work. Um, I think most people accept that it's just a matter of time. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's it's a fascinating new area of physics. And it's the the things you're doing in, in your career are, are groundbreaking on those two fronts on the fact that you're you're doing real science and like it's i cannot express enough how how good i think it is that you're getting students involved do you see a lot of turnover like the kids that you get involved end up getting into astronomy or physics do you see the opposite do you see kids are like this is not for me i do not like this i'm out some of them i mean some of the high school students in the program do it for a bit and they realize they really don't like research or science, and that's fine too. You know, at least they've had the opportunity to see what it's like, and they're going to go back into whatever career they end up in, being a more educated person and being able to parse scientific articles better. And that's that's great. Like, not everyone needs to be a scientist. Yeah, and I think the the travel component is good. Bringing them to to West Virginia, or um, do do you ever bring students to Arecibo? Does that ever happen? Oh yeah, I yeah. brought. Um, bunch of undergrads there a few years ago and for two of the students I brought from West Virginia they'd never been on a plane and they'd never seen a beach and we went to Puerto Rico we saw a beach there in addition to the telescope like it was really eye-opening yeah that's cool and you saw probably a hurricane off in the distance and just a whole bunch (laughs) of new experiences yeah when I was a kid the only vacation there was was Florida that was the only place in the whole world it was like Pennsylvania and then there was Florida as well you know and every single student they were like yeah I went to Florida this summer that was it if you didn't go, if you went to Alabama or something, get out of my life. If you yeah. went to Louisiana, no, Florida was it. Florida. Yeah, was I mean, I was a kid before I became an astronomer. The only plane I'd been on had gone to Disney World. See, you know? that's what I'm saying. Yeah, oh. I've never been to Disney World. I, I've been to Florida, but I'm a huge fan of roller coasters. I absolutely love them, and Disneyland never did it for me. I was like, wait a minute, these roller coasters are like 80 feet tall, and they're like themed, and they go slow. No, I don't want get Disneyland out of here. You know, I would go to, I would make my mother, if she were to take me anywhere, go to the, you know, the more extreme sort of mm, roller coaster yeah. destinations. But yeah, Des- Disney World, every kid I talk to, like, you've never been to Disney World? I'm like, dude, I've never seen a Disney movie. Get that out of here. When I was, when I was six, I was watching like mixed martial arts. I loved it. Wrestling, fake wrestling. I don't know. Do your kids watch fake wrestling right now? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> See, it, man, when, hitting each other in the head with chairs and you learn all about brain damage. And yeah, I was I was down with that. So, but anyway, I, I won't take any more of your time. Do you have anything that you'd like to plug before we go? I will just say, I mean, I never pass up the opportunity to talk about how important our telescopes are. Um, the GBT and Arecibo, we need to keep them funded. Um, they're some of the most sensitive telescopes in the entire world, the best ones for doing this science. And so I just like to tell people, if you have a chance to talk to your Congress people, um, just remind them how important it is to fund those facilities. And if you're a high school student or a high school teacher and you want to get involved in our Pulsar Search Collaboratory program, send me an email or go to pulsarsearchcollaboratory.com and you can find out all about it there. There you go. And I'll put, I'll put those necessary links down below. Okay, and it was just voting day. So hopefully you voted in great people who are willing to fund science. And if you didn't, well, you must hate the world and you must hate climate change and you must hate people because we're all going to die unless you elect good, good 
you know, people to represent us. So that's, a good, that's a good nihilistic way to end this <laughs> on. So hopefully we don't all die of carbon pollution. And I thank you for participating. And I thank you, most of all, people out there for listening, wherever you're at. Maybe you're in Peru. I bet, I bet you're in Peru right now, one of you. One of you out there. And whoever you are, you're a very special person. I hope you have a great day. We're out. <laughs>